Amen. Now, I want to tell you this morning that Get Rich Quick has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I don't like this sermon series title. Okay, is that out of the way? I'm blaming it on the young folks. But in defense of them, we're talking this morning about the richness of what it means to mark and make disciples. I didn't like their text, so I chose another one. And none of us this week, none of us who've been preaching this week, none of us could preach exactly the way we thought we could in light of what has happened in our country, in our state this week. So I'm going to read something before I read the scripture today because I have a very simple message and a very complex challenge. I'm going to read this this article. Headlines. Bomb threats at more than 100 Jewish community centers. Dozens of mosques vandalized and attacked. Shootings at churches across the country on the rise. Now, reading the headlines, you might get the impression, this article says, that sacred spaces are increasingly unsafe and that religion itself is under attack in America. The attack on November the 5th targeted more than a single congregation, wrote a prominent Southern Baptist. It was an assault of Christianity itself. But most attacks at houses of worship aren't really about religion, experts say. And even with the steady rise of shootings and hate crimes, spiritual sanctuaries remain among the more secure spots to spend a Sunday morning. Now, I wish he'd have said, better than a golf course, better than a fishing boat. But not. It's very safe to go to church on Sunday said Dallas Drake, a criminologist at the Center for Homicide Research in Minneapolis. And there are very few incidents, but they are high profile when they occur. Drake likened church shootings to mass murders in schools. They are horrific because of who and what they target, but they are also relatively rare. Police said, This act in Sutherland Springs was not racially motivated. It wasn't about religious beliefs. Freeman Martin, regional director of the Texas Department of Public Safety, said there was a domestic situation going on with the family and the in-laws. That's what occurred. In 17% of church shootings, the attacker felt unwelcome or had been rejected by the church, 17%. Drake said 12% of the shooters suffered from a mental illness. You thought all of them were crazy. And those statistics report with more recent data from Carl Chin, a church security consultant based in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Chin has collective data on more than 1,600 deadly force incidents 
since 1999 at all houses of worship, including mosques and synagogues. Chen found that more than 10% of all homicides at churches of worship involve mental illness. 10%. Religious bias accounted for about 6%. Both Chen and Drake found that deadly attacks at houses of worship have increased in recent years. And looking more broadly at all the violence at all houses of worship, Trend has tallied more than 250 incidents, each in 2015 and 2016, and through August, there had already been 173 this year. According to Chen, that, of course, doesn't include Sutherland Springs Massacre. The shootings are part of an overall and alarming increase in mass shootings within the country at large. And in some ways, Drake said, houses of worship are simply the most convenient venue for attackers who harbor grudges against former lovers, spouses, or friends. And many sanctuaries have regular schedules and they lack robust security and proudly bear open door policies. Churches are designed to attract the least and the lost and to welcome them into the loving community, even if that sometimes has terrible consequences. How are we going to change? I'd like you to turn with me this morning to Matthew, the 28th chapter. The Great Commission. I'd like for you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll start with the 16th verse of the 28th chapter. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Okay, you you better be seated. Your legs might get tired. Go ahead, be seated. Really, seriously. I mean, I want to stop right here before we go on because, you know, sometimes we're confused about the Great Commission. It starts right here. Go, therefore, into all nations. You make disciples of all nations. You see, Jesus is first calling us out of our comfort zones. He didn't say just go to the people who look like you or who act like you or or whom you like. He said go and make disciples of all nations. You go out of your comfort zone where people are. Where people are living and struggling and, 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 and that's who you make disciples of. That's your target. Your target is all You know, I I think sometimes that we, 
We hear people talking about how, you know, we may have too many people of color here at Lover's Lane, or we may have too many people who have gotten out of prison and who have come into our midst. We served them in prison and they've come here. Maybe too many people who come from across the street dealing with addictions here. Jesus said, Go make disciples of all nations, all the world, all people. Now here's the part in the Great Commission that most people think is the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the mark of a Christian. We follow the example of Jesus when we're baptized, right? Jesus was baptized. And when Jesus was baptized, the Father said, This is my Son. You do what my Son says. And then a dove came and and lit on Jesus, the symbol of the Holy Spirit. And the only place in the Bible where it gives this Trinitarian formula of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is right here in the Great Commission. That's the only place. And yet we use the Trinitarian formula in all of our rituals because we embrace a triune God, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And we mark our sisters and brothers no matter what age because whether you are one year old or a hundred years old or anywhere in the middle or on either side, you, when you're baptized, symbolize God's first love of you. Whether you know what's going on, whether you will ever come to belief, God marks us with a first love. God says, You are loved no matter what. And who among us could have that kind of love? I can't. And baptism marks us with that great love. We are loved by God no matter what. And we Methodists, we sprinkle. That means put a little bit of water on the head. And we do so in relation to the the Bible in Ezekiel that says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be pure. And sometimes we pour water. We believe in that mode too. So whether you were sprinkled or had water poured on your head, if you've come into this community, you're welcome. And that symbolizes what Joel said in the second chapter, speaking for God. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. I'll pour out my flesh on all people. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And we also immerse. You know, I remember when we built the shepherd's garden and we started immersing people here in the, uh, the beautiful fountain at the end of the garden. People said, oh, we're acting like a bunch of Baptists. Well, thank God, we're acting like a bunch of Methodists too. Because we Methodists believe in the symbol of immersion. If you come into this church and you've been immersed, that's great. Because we immerse too as United Methodists. And it symbolizes the death and resurrection of Jesus, the great sacrifice of Jesus, and new life that we have in him. All you Baptists say amen. All right. We mark our sisters and brothers 
with the water of new life. But that's not the end of the commission. Sometimes we think it is the end. I mean, the commission's about going into all the world and making disciples, and, and, and we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Great Commission. That's part of the Great Commission, but the Great Commission continues. Teach them to obey everything, Jesus said, everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you to the end of the age. Now, I hope this morning you have comfort in that aspect of the Great Commission that you may not have even thought about was part of the Great Commission, but it is. Jesus said, I am with you always and will be to the end of the age. But remember, teach them everything I have commanded you. Well, here's what Jesus commanded. In part, we don't have near time enough to talk about all of the commandments of Jesus. But Jesus said, love one another. And then Jesus said, love one another as you would have them love you. And then Jesus said, right before he climbed upon a cross for you and me, he said, love one another as I have loved you. Now that's raising the bar, friends. You love one another with a sacrificial love like I have loved you. That's what he commands And then he said this. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. Whoa. I wish he hadn't said that. And then he said, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, you turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you for your coat, well, you just give them your cloak too. Whoa. And no greater love has anyone than this. That he would lay down his life for a friend. Did anyone wake up this morning and wonder if church was going to be safe today? Did you? It's okay if you did. I've thought about it this week. Did anyone think this morning if I go to church I may be risking my life? Well, you are. You may not be in danger of a shooter, but you are risking your life. You're risking by being here that you just might be changed and you just might be converted again. That the Holy Spirit may be drawing you out of your comfort zone into a place that just isn't safe, let's admit it. This week... The talk in the church world has not been about the Great Commission. Rather, it has been about keeping our churches safer. Really? We preachers across the country have heard the issues of safety raised. What would you do if a shooter 
came onto your campus, into your place of worship. Even our bishop wrote a letter encouraging people to go to church. Maybe he's heard from people who are afraid to go to church after last Sunday's horrible incident. And, and, and the encouragement is, you know, go to church. It's safe. Really? Now, now, don't get me wrong. We take safety very seriously here. We have three armed policemen here every Sunday very visible. We're going to go through some training with our ushers and greeters uh, related to emergency incidents, including shooters. But is the church commissioned to be safe? The mission statement of the United Methodist Church is making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. So we're marking and we're making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we do, but we go to that place that talks about why we do it, and that is because we want to transform the world. Wow. Friends, transforming the world is not safe. It's risky. If we're serious about transforming the world and going there, then we need to realize that that's not a comfortable place to be. The mission is bold and it's aggressive and it is not safe. Do you hear me? Going to church and being the church should not first be known as safe. Rather, I believe that the task entrusted to the Christian church is most important to be understood as being kind of risky. You know, Tom Shipp, um, our, our first pastor for 31 years, he used to love to say the church's role is to be up a tree and out on a limb, not to be safe. And, and God knows, God only knows that this church from its very beginning days has, has been about not safe ministry but risky ministry and that's our DNA. When we spend our time, church, answering questions that no one is asking while neglecting the deepest concerns of the human spirit, we as a church are living safe. And, and friends, we do deal with questions a lot of times, internal questions, that the, the world isn't even asking and doesn't even care about, and we look so silly. And when we use our time and energy and resources doing things that really don't need to be done, solving little inconsequential problems, while neglecting the open sores of a hurting world, we have become too safe. When we jump on the bandwagon of popularity and exhaust ourselves doing what other groups in society are doing, while neglecting that which the Christian church can do and must do, we're too safe. And when we find ourselves on Sunday afraid, uncomfortable, or just plain don't like it that there are people of color in our midst, 
Are there former offenders in our midst? Are there persons who are still dealing with addictions in our midst? Are there persons of different sexual orientations in our midst? Are there too many old people or too many young people in our midst? Then, then friends, we're too safe. And when the church lives too safe, we're in danger of what the cynic said about the church. And I hate this line. I hate it that he said it, but he said, the church is a little company of people on a side street singing ditties about heaven. Whoa. And as much as we'd hate to admit it, there are lots of people out there who, who they see us just that way. A little company of people on a side street singing ditties about heaven. Now hear me loud and clear this morning. Trivial pursuit is a game that we dare not play as the church. Let me explain. The need is too great. The stakes are too high. Transformation of the world is not an easy task. And all around us, people are searching for answers, for a sense of direction. They are looking for a foundation to build their lives on. They want some center, some meaning. And, and we, the church, are the people called to deliver it. And earnestly, they believe the Christian church just might have the answer, but if we don't find it there, where is it? And what they're looking for is the God who has been revealed in Jesus. They just may not know it. That's why this Great Commission is, it has to be such a passion with us. We can't just hear it and say, oh, that was nice, the Great Commission. Again, we hear another sermon on the Great Commission. This is serious business. This is life-transforming business. And if we're not providing a connection between people and God, then we're just traveling too safe, really. Okay, I'm going to conclude. Wes Seliger is a retired, unconventional Episcopalian priest who wrote a book a long time ago, back in the 80s when I was in Houston and Wes was in Houston. I got hold of his little book that had these little two-page uh, devotionals in it that were very well written and very uncomfortable to read called One Inch from the Fence. He was talking about feeding marshmallows to an alligator one inch from the fence. But I like the story that he shared about his love of motorcycles. He tells about going into a motorcycle shop one day, and he was drooling, he said, over a huge Honda 750. I don't, I don't know about that. But a salesman came up and began to talk to him about the bike. And he said, you like that bike? I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that thing has speed and acceleration. And, and I tell you, when you rev that thing up, the pipes growl like you wouldn't believe. And I'm telling you, it's a racing machine and cute chicks like it. 
And he went on and on. And then he said, by the way, what do you do? I know the feeling. Oh, I know the feeling. And Wes said, well, I'm a clergyman. I'm a minister. I'm an Anglican Episcopalian priest. And he said, immediately the language changed. And the salesman said, in a quiet tone, you know these bikes, I mean motorcycles, they get really, really good gas mileage. And they have total visibility. And they're not nearly as unsafe as some people might have you believe. They're, they're very, very safe if you know how to ride them. And I'm sure, Father, you know how to ride it. And oh, they're so practical. And Wes wrote... Lawnmower salesmen are not surprised to find clergymen looking at their merchandise. Motorcycle salesmen are. Why? Does this tell us something about the popular image of clergymen or the church? Lawnmowers are slow and they're safe and they're sane and they're practical and they're middle class. Motorcycles are fast and they're dangerous and they're wild and they're thrilling. And, and then Wes asks a question. He said, is the Christian life more like mowing the lawn or riding a bike? Is the Christian life meant to be safe and sane or dangerous and risky and exciting? The common image of the church is pure lawnmower, slow, deliberate, plodding. Our task as the church is to take the church out on the open road, give her the gas, and see what the old baby will do. I think that's what Jesus was talking about. When he said, out of your comfort zone. You go into all the world. You go to all nations when you're making disciples. You don't go to the people who just look like you, act like you, believe like you, think like you. You go into all the world, all nations, out of your comfort zone to make disciples and mark them. Not with your love. It has limits. You mark them with my love that has no limits. 
You understand that if they're a marked child of mine, that you have a responsibility to make sure that child learns my commandments. And it's not safe. But you teach them everything, everything. Not just the parts you like. Not just that that seems easy. You teach them everything that I've commanded you. Because I haven't commanded you to do anything that's safe or easy. But have comfort in this. You're not alone. You're not alone. And I am with you always, every second, every day, always, even to the end of the earth. Amen.